Thank you for taking the time to listen to this sermon from Seekers Christian Fellowship. We believe that God's Word completes the believer, making them fully equipped men and women of God, ready for every good work. It is our prayer that through this message, you're challenged by the Word of God, built up in love for God and one another, conforming to the image of Jesus Christ. church and uh, I just want to welcome everyone those who are here and those who are watching online Uh, it's good to be in the house of God and um, thank you for joining us so I just can't believe that we have come to the very end of the study in the book of Nehemiah we started off on in September last year and we have come to the 13th chapter we are on the second phase of this whole book We are talking about the restoration of the people of Judah. When we looked at chapter 11 a couple of Sundays ago, we looked at in the new, there were new residents in the new city of Jerusalem, and the walls were built, the gates had been done, and the people had been ushered in, the the civil and the spiritual laws are in order, and we saw that the people were in festive mood. That's what we saw. And it's a kind of a sense of belonging a sense of freedom. It's a new beginning, a new start. And last time we looked at in chapter 12, we saw that the dedication of the walls surrounding Jerusalem took place and Nehemiah appointed leaders. And we looked at it last time as we went through chapter 12. And we noticed some characteristics of these leaders and we learned that a leader should possess a purified heart, if you recall that. A leader must possess a worshipful heart. A leader must possess a joyful heart. Church, the climax of the book is the dedication celebration in chapter 12, where the people rejoiced because God had given them that great joy. They were so excited. They were so happy. It was a new beginning, a fresh start for them. It's like migrating to a new country and starting everything all over new. Let me read verse 43 that we looked at last time. Also, that day they offered great sacrifices and rejoiced, for God had made them rejoice with great joy. The women and the children also rejoiced, so that the joy of Jerusalem was heard afar off. Now, as I dive into the last chapter, chapter 13, You know, I must say I deeply regret to some degree because I truly wished that it would have been nice if this book ended there in chapter 12 and if Nehemiah has written down and they all lived happily ever after. But the reality of life was not that. It's different. As you dive into chapter 13, it teaches us very valuable lessons for those in the ministry for those who are serving and to those who are being served. So let's dive in and let's get the big picture first. We are starting with verse number 6 in chapter 13. Follow along very carefully. But during all this, now Nehemiah is writing it, whatever that's, that's happening at that time. And then he says, I, who is this I? Nehemiah. I was not in Jerusalem, for in the 32nd year of Artaxerxes, king of Babylon, 
So there we learn that he has served in Jerusalem for 12 years because he came at the 20th year. At the 32nd year of Artaxerxes, king of Babylon, I had returned to the king. Then after certain days, again Nehemiah does not say how long he stayed away from Jerusalem, I obtained leave from the king and I came to Jerusalem and discovered. That's what you're seeing in verse number 6. So here is Nehemiah after serving as governor in Judah for nearly 12 years. He himself mentioned this, that he was the governor. He went back to Persia, but when he returned to Jerusalem after, 12, after a period of time, he discovered what? What did he discover? That's what you are going to learn today. There's a spiritual tolerance, a spiritual compromise, or a spiritual permissiveness. Or decline. That's what he saw has set in in Jerusalem. He discovered that the fires of devotion had gone out in Jerusalem. He discovered that the situation has deteriorated dramatically for the people were not living up the vows they made. If you recall, when we studied chapter 9 and chapter 10, I showed you even a diagram and we walked through the spiritual formation cycle. They broke that cycle, the cyclical curse. Now seeing all this, as heartbroken as he was, Nehemiah immediately began to act decisively to change the situation. That's what they are learning in chapter 13. He refused to allow the problems to conquer him. Understand, church, who is this Nehemiah? He was, an, he was only a cupbearer. He was the construction foreman when he came to Jerusalem. He was the governor who was ruling the Judah for, for, for 12 years. He was not a pastor, he was not an elder, he was not a priest. But all he wanted was he intensely desired to please the Lord. That's all he wanted. He took Israel's sin by the throat and he confronts the issues head on. So the lesson we learn, without spiritual leadership, God's people are prone to stray like sheep. Without Spiritual leadership, God's people are prone to stray like sheep. And that's what we, Isaiah says in 53 uh, verse 6. He says, we all like sheep have gone astray. So we see some examples in the scriptures. When the leaders are missing, how people behave. Take the case of Moses. Mo Moses was away from the people of Israel only a short time and they became idolaters. Paul established churches and leave it in the hands of the elders only to have trouble begin soon after his departure. So he had to write to them again and he had to pay visits again to rectify the problems. No wonder Paul exhorted the Ephesians church as he did in the book of Acts chapter 20. I wanted to see the heart of Paul because this is what we see mostly in, even the leadership is absent in the church. Here's what Paul says. For I know this, after my departure, Paul says, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. 
Also from among yourselves, Paul is saying, men will rise up, speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after themselves. Paul is warning the church what would happen when he leaves. And then he said, therefore, and he said, please watch. That word please I added here. And he says, please remember. Again, I added that word please here. Because that is the heart of Paul here. That for three years I did not cease to warn everyone night and day with tears. I wanted to see the pain of Paul. Church ministry is not starting a program. It's not starting a church. Ministry is carrying it through and through. Ministry is being consistently faithful. That's the key word. In the midst of challenges and criticisms and letdowns and betrayal and, and fatigue, to be consistently faithful, to be consistently loyal, to be consistently being steadfast. Now, Nehemiah was gone from Jerusalem only a short time. He came home to find the people defiled by compromise. That's what Nehemiah is seeing here. So when he returned, he found that the tolerance was out of control in the very areas that people covenanted with God. Most of us, if we were in the position of Nehemiah, would have got so frustrated. We would have said, I give up. It's useless to try to reform these people. I've been trying over and over again. I'm sure as pastors and leaders and elders, you know what I'm talking about. You may cry out to the Lord and say, how long God is going to happen like this? How long should I be babysitting these people? I had it. Enough is enough. Nehemiah strongly confronted the problem. The problem of tolerance and compromise. So there are two things that he teaches here. To deal with this spiritual compromise or tolerance, first we must be aware of the problem, and then we must strongly confront them. Let's get into the narrative now. So the obvious question that you would ask, because we looked at it in chapter 12, Nehemiah very carefully chose some leaders. Where are they? What happened? Why didn't the others deal with this problem when Nehemiah was away? Now, let's look at verse number 13. It says, And I appointed as treasurers over the storehouse Shelemiah the priest and Zadok the scribe and of the Levites. So what this indicates to us is that Ezra may have died by now. So there are new leaders Perhaps the other leaders just didn't see the problems to the degree that Nehemiah did. You know, as I read this verse, there's something that came to me so profoundly, and I want to spell this out to you. Please listen, church. It's very often the trajectory deterioration of the spirituality of the body, it could be individuals, it could be the church, is unnoticeable for those who are living in it. It's unnoticeable. Those living in it are like the well-known frog in the kettle. 
Now, we may sense that the water is getting hot, but not enough to jump out because it cooks us. See this, church. Before this moral decline had set in, I wanted to see for yourself, the people had listened to the reading of the word and which made them aware of God's standards for holiness for his people. Look at verses 1 to 3 in chapter 13. Verses 1 to 3. Hear this. On that day they read from the book of Moses. They are hearing the word of God being read. The, on that day they read from the book of Moses in the hearing of the people, and in it was found written that no Ammonite or Moabite should ever come into the assembly of God because they had not met the children of Israel with bread and water but hired Balaam against them to curse them. However, our God turned the curse into a blessing so as a result of hearing the word of God, see what they did. So it was when they had heard the law that they separated all the mixed multitude from Israel. They heard the word of God and they acted on it. When they heard the law, verse number 3, they separated all the mixed multitude from Israel. They separated, why? Because that is what God declared, God commanded. If you look at Deuteronomy chapter 23, maybe you can do, do it later on in your, when you have time. God was serious about who associates with, with whom, and even right now, God means that. Now, in Deuteronomy chapter 23, verses 3 and 5, it talks about that no Ammonite or Moabite should enter the assembly of the Lord. And it says in that particular passage, the instruction says, even to the tenth generation. Boy. Even to the tenth generation. The Lord is very serious about these instructions, church. Who can enter into the assembly of God? None of his descendants shall enter the assembly of the Lord forever because of the way those nations have treated Israel when they were in wilderness. In essence, what he's saying, if you allow these foreigners into their midst, they would corrupt Israel from following the Lord alone. That's why even in the verse number two here, you see the dangerous counsel of Balaam. For the king of Moab to get his people to intermarry with Israel. That was a counsel that was given. And pretty soon Israel would be just like the Moabites, following their gods. The same thing happened with King Solomon, whose foreign wives led him to idolatry. Now, we'll be coming back to this passage later, but I just want you to see this. Get the big picture here. Verse 13, uh, chapter 13, verse 26. Listen to what Nehemiah says about this. Did not Solomon, king of Israel, sin by these things? And the last part of that, nevertheless, pagan women caused even him to sin. We'll study this later. So what we are seeing in this this chapter is sometime during the absence of Nehemiah, Satan somehow wormed his way in by introducing spiritual compromise in four areas as we read through this chapter. So how did Nehemiah spot these areas of these problems, these deviations? Because Nehemiah 
had the knowledge of the scripture. Because he had the knowledge of the scripture, he was able to spot the problems in Jerusalem when he, get back, when he got back. Listen, church, only if you are steeped in the word of God, you will detect spiritual compromise in ourselves. So let us identify the compromise and see how Nehemiah addressed them. The first thing that we see here, I said there are four compromises. The first one is a theological tolerance or theological permissiveness or compromise because of wrong relationships. Because of wrong relationships. Let's see what happened during the time Nehemiah was away from Jerusalem. Uh, verse number 4 says, Now before this, Eliashib, the priest, having authority over the storerooms of the house of our God, was allied with Tobiah. Now let's look at verse number 5. It's appearing on the screen. And he, who is this he? The Eliashib, the priest, had prepared for him, who is this him? Is Tobiah. A large room. So what was this room used for before? Where previously they had stored the grain offerings, the frankincense, the articles, the tithes of grain, the new wine and oil, which were commanded to be given to whom? To the Levites and singers and gatekeepers and the offerings for the priests. Church, the temple contained some storage rooms. That was specifically for the grain offerings, the utensils, and the tithes of the people. These goods were to be given to the Levites who were serving. Now while Nehemiah was gone, Eliashib, the high priest, had cleared out all these rooms. And what did he do? So that the Tobiah, the Ammonite, could set up an apartment there. So who is this Tobiah? I don't know how many of you can recall when he studied this in, in chapter 2, we see his name coming, chapter 4, we see his name coming up again. His Tobiah was a mocker who strongly opposed Nehemiah's every effort earlier to rebuild the wall. He was a foreigner. He had many connections with the Jews and he had persuaded them that he was a good man. But meanwhile, he had sent threatening letters to Nehemiah, the very Tobiah who was allowed to come into the temple and who was given an apartment to reside in. The very Tobiah sent threatening letters to Nehemiah. We see that in chapter 6, verse 19. But here he is, setting up a personal residence in the temple. So what's going on here? Why would the high priest do such thing? There may be several reasons. The firstly, as we read through verse number four and look at it as it appears, I read this to you before, the high priest and Tobiah were related somehow. Now before this, Eliashib, the priest having authority over the storerooms of the house of our God, was allied, whatever that means, with Tobiah. And some commentators say that probably through marriage. There was a connection between the high priest and this pagan Tobiah. So secondly, the first reason could be that. The second reason is that the Tobiah had a Jewish name. His name means God is good. 
So now he wasn't totally Ammonite, he's partially Ammonite. Church is always more difficult to draw the line against a good person who is just mixed up on some things. It's easy for us to outwardly, if it's an outwardly wicked person, it's easy for us to challenge that person. But when you see partially good, it's hard for us to challenge. It is tough though, tough to side with the strict commandment of God's word, such as excluding all Ammonites from the assembly of Israel when your relative is an Ammonite. And that's Tobiah here. And especially when you know that he's, he seems to be partly Jewish because of his name. So let me put it in a modern term so that we can understand it better. You know, church, it is tough to insist that the Roman Catholic way of salvation is not God's way when you have Catholic relatives and friends, isn't it? It's hard to confront when someone who is so close to you, to the church body, when he or she is not treating their spouse with God-ordained love. It's heartbreaking to decline to marry someone who is very near and dear to you when that person chooses a non-believer as his or her partner. It is awkward to tell a young lady that her clothing is inappropriate when she happens to be a leader's daughter. It's hard to tell a young man that his demeanor is not pleasing to the Lord and is not a good testimony when he is active in the ministry. It is difficult to discipline someone not to be judgmental when he or she is doing God's work. And the list can go on, church. So what action did Nehemiah take to address this compromise? When Nehemiah came back and discovered what had taken place, he stormed through the temple and did some serious spring cleaning. Let's look at verses 7 to 9. And I came to Jerusalem and discovered, discovered what? The evil that Eliashib, this is the priest he's talking about. The evil that Eliashib had done for Tobiah in preparing a room for him in the courts of the house of God. And it grieved me bitterly. See the terms that Nehemiah is using here when he noticed that. It grieved me bitterly. See how he describes his emotions here. Therefore, I threw all the household goods of Tobiah out of the room. You know, as I was reading this, I was reminded of God, Jesus walking into the temple and throwing, turning the tables down. He says, I threw all the household goods of Tobiah out of the room. The swift action he took is a stern action. It's, of course, it's not a desired action. Imagine the people, how they would have reacted at that time. And verse number 9, then I commanded them to cleanse the rooms and I brought back into them the articles of the house of God with the grain offering and the frankincense. What a bold move by Nehemiah here. Nehemiah's action was swift and decisive. I'm sure many would have thought Nehemiah was overreacting and, over, and being unreasonable. Nehemiah was not interested in winning any popularity contest there, church. His interest was in cleaning out the evil that was already affecting the people's ability to hear and obey the word of God. So two issues Nehemiah noticed in this problem. Number one, there was a wrong association with people. 
Number two is the ignorance of God's command. God's word was belittled here. So what we see here, church, the two influencing factors for theological compromise or tolerance are the time we spend in the word of God and the people that we associate with. Those are two things that we see. Wrong priorities for his word reshapes our values and our stand. Wrong friendships seriously damage us spiritually. Now Paul told this to Timothy concerning those who hold a form of godliness. What did he say? Avoid such men. Run away from them. In 2 Timothy 3.5. Having a form of godliness but denying his power and from such people turn away. And NIV says have nothing to do with them. And about the word of God, you all know the passage in 2 Timothy 3.16. He says, the word that is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction and righteousness. That is why we should teach our children the danger of not having the word. The danger of not having the right friends. That is why first we must study the word diligently, church. John Stott, and some of you might have read many of his books, he's a great theologian, and this is what he says about the Word of God. Hear me, please. Allow the Word of God to confront you. Allow the Word of God to confront you, to disturb your security, to undermine your complacency, and to overthrow your patterns of thoughts and behavior. That's how John Stott puts about the Word of God. So we must study the word diligently and we must saturate ourselves with the company of godly men and women. That's important for us. Who are friends matter a lot. That's why Christian fellowship is very vital. That's why children must be encouraged to be part of the Sunday school family. That's why your children must join the youth group. That's why your children must be part of the young adult group and spending more time with the right friends. That's why the men's and women's meetings and fellowships are very important for us. Two lessons we learn from this church. Number one, as leaders, we should not be reluctant to address issues of concern pertaining to theological compromise. We should be swift in dealing with it. As believers, to avoid this theological compromise, we should abide in His Word. And we should, be, we should not be yoked with unbelievers. So the first thing we saw here when Nehemiah got back was the theological tolerance. The second thing that he's seeing is somewhat linked to the first one. There was financial tolerance. Financial tolerance. Financial compromise. They both are connected to some degree because spiritual problems seldom occur in isolation. Look at verse number 10 here. Oops. Sorry, I did something wrong. Okay. I also realized, verse number 10, that the portions for the Levites had not been given them. For each of the Levites and the singers who did the work had gone back to his field. Because of Tobiah moving into the temple, there were not enough room for, the, for storage of the tithes. Therefore, priests have not required the people to bring their tithes in. But you know, according to the law of Moses, the Levites were to minister in and around the temple and the people were to support them through tithes. But because tithes had ceased, the Levites, as you heard me read from this passage, they had to go to work in the fields. They too have a family. 
Most of the time, people think that pastors don't have families. That they face every issue that you're facing. They too have to bring bacon home. They have to make, a bill, make their living. They have to pay their bills. They have to pay for their, pay, pay for their food. That's why they have to secure jobs outside. That was the result. Now the temple duties were neglected. Why? Because there were no tithes coming into the temple. So what did Nehemiah do? Look at this. So I contented with the rulers. Strong words, isn't it? And said, why is the house of God forsaken? And I gathered them together and set them in their place. I love this phrase. Set them in this, their place. Then all Judah brought the tithe of the grain and the new wine and the oil to the storehouse. And verse number 13, he says, And appointed as treasurers over the storehouse of Shalamiah the priest and Zadok the scribe and the Levites and so on and so forth. And he said, For they were considered faithful and their task was to distribute to their brethren. So lesson for us, church. When we fail to give... The ministry suffers. While we are not under the law of, tithe, of the tithe, but rather we are to give as the Lord prospers us. That's what we find in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 16. On the first day of the week, Paul says, let each one of you lay something aside, storing up as he may prosper. So the principle holds true here. The spiritual the tolerance invariably has a negative effect on our giving. As a church body, we need to be intentional in teaching the congregation to be cheerful giver. Giving still serves the purpose. Giving is part of worship. It contributes to the advancement of the gospel through the local church. While tithing isn't a New Testament mandate, it serves as a valuable guideline for us today. So many pastor questions, I've, so many have asked me the question, so how much should I give pastor? Let me list out how you should give, all taken from the scriptures. These are commands and examples and let's, let's run it through very quickly with you, for you. You give regularly. You give secretly. You give sacrificially. You give based on your earnings as the Lord prospers you. You give purposefully. You give cheerfully. And you give with God's priorities in mind. And you give generously. That is how you give. You give cheerfully. So church, so far we looked at Nehemiah return. He discovered first the theological tolerance, second the financial tolerance. Third one he's looking at now as you go into that. Let me tell you what it is. It's a tolerance for Sabbath. Tolerance for Sabbath. Let's look at verse number 15 now. In those days, I saw people in Judah treading winepress on the Sabbath and bringing in sheaves and loading donkeys with wine, grapes, figs, and all kinds of birds which they brought into Jerusalem on the Sabbath day. And I warned them about the day on which they were selling provisions. See what happened when Nehemiah was away. Even though people had agreed in their covenant with God to keep Sabbath holy, we all do that when you come to the Lord. I'm all yours, God. You're my priority. 
I want you to see the commitment these very people made in chapter 10. Look at this, chapter 10, verse 31. If the peoples of the land brought wares or any grain to sell on the Sabbath day, see what these people said, we would not buy it from them on the Sabbath. Do you see that church? When they bring it on the Sabbath day, we will not buy it. We'll have nothing to do with them on the Sabbath day. And he says that or on a holy day, we would forego the seventh year's produce and the exacting of every debt. This was the covenant with God. We will observe the Sabbath. We'll honor the day of the Lord. Now the leader leaves the town. Spiritual lethargy sets in and you bring in, you being compromised. They quickly fell into doing business on the day even in Jerusalem. Look at verse number 16, chapter 13. Men of Tyre, this is pagans, outsiders, dwelt there also who brought in fish and all kinds of goods and sold them on what? The Sabbath day to the children of Judah and in Jerusalem. So what we are seeing here is some merchants from Tyre who had no sense of right or wrong about Sabbath were doing a brisk business selling imported fish and merchandise in the city on the Sabbath day. No doubt the Jews had every excuse of violating the Sabbath. They, can, they say, come on, what can we do now? The fish is only available on the Sabbath. Of course, the men of Tyre, no holy Sabbath, no spiritual distinction in their weekly schedule, but how about the Israelites? The covenant slipped away. No fulfillment of their promise. They were stone deaf to God's command concerning Sabbath. So they break away from their covenant. That these very people made with the Lord. When the Lord first brought them and gave them new life. Rings a bell, church. Excuses. After excuses. You should know they would say, if I don't tread my grapes on the Sabbath, they will rot. Everyone else is doing business, then I can't compete if I close my shop on a Sabbath day. All these imported fish will just rot and go waste if we don't buy them. How about us? Forget about them. How about you and me? Of course, we are not under strict Sabbath laws of Israel. But like these religious Jews, it is easy to make up excuses for what, why we put business and our pursuit of pleasure ahead of worship. Pastor, I would love to spend time in, but I've got long working hours. Pastor, when I get home, I'm exhausted and I need some time to sit in front of the TV and to relax. I would love to go to church more often, but Sunday is my only day I'm off. I like to sit back and have a nice breakfast and read a paper and, and play some games with my kids. I know the service starts at 9 o'clock, but Pastor, you know, Saturday nights are busy days for me and, and I can't get up at 9 o'clock to come for the service. I'll watch it later and the later never happens. I need to lie down. I need to do my house errands. This is the only day for me to rest and to cook for the whole week. I have heard this excuse from many people. Let me have some fun. I work all six days. Church, stop it. Stop it. 
You are deceiving yourself. You are deceiving God. Let me ask you some hard probing questions. This message convicted me and I hope it convicts you as well. Who gave you this job that keeps you from God? Who gave you this house that you want to decorate and make it into a palace? Who gave this, you this family that you want to tour around with? Who gave you this land that you enjoy so much freedom? Who gave you this very health that you have the very breath of life today that allows you to move around and party around? The Lord himself says, Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be given unto you. What things you may ask, he says, what shall I eat? What shall I wear? What shall I drink? All your basic needs, he says, you have time for everything, but not for the Lord. Church, with utmost humility, I want to tell you one thing, because I want, as a pastor, this is a burning, uh, it's a burden for me, I need to share with you. The one thing both my wife and I determined to keep, no matter how busy we were, we seldom missed a Sunday service. An all-night prayer when our kids were small. I never said my child has to sleep at 6 o'clock in the evening. I can't come for a prayer. I took them with the pajamas and put them down on the ground and I, we prayed, we prayed, and we prayed. Didn't miss Bible studies, retreats, and camps. Unless, of course, we were really, really sick. But I want to be... I want to admit very clearly, church, at no stretch of imagination, I would say that we were perfect. I, we failed miserably many, many times. But we have tasted his love. I have tasted his love. In the little faithfulness that I demonstrated, I have certainly witnessed it. He is faithful all the time. Being in my old age today, I want to tell you to the young people and everyone who is listening, I can truly testify this, to this. All that I have needed... Not what I wanted. My God has provided. He will do the same for you. When you keep him your priority. When you honor the Sabbath. When you honor your covenant. That is what the psalmist says. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who trusts in him. Church, I, what I have seen in many cases, it, it is when the Lord lifts his hands of protection off you. You come rolling back. You sprint back to the Lord. Then it will be, he's all I need now, God. Pastor, help me. Can you pray for me? What a hypocritical life we lead, church. Whom are we kidding? See what Nehemiah did here. Nehemiah had not forgotten the people's promise. He was not going to let them forget it either. Look at verse number 17. Then I contended with the nobles of Judah and said to them, what evil thing is this that you do by which you profane the Sabbath day? He is not mincing his words. Verse 22. And I commanded the Levite that they should cleanse themselves and they should go and guard the gates to sanctify the Sabbath day. There was nothing indecisive about Nehemiah. He went for the main artery of sinful practices. He did not give up his grip and until the life had been completely squeezed out of them, he confronted dead on. When Nehemiah returned to Jerusalem, he has seen these three tolerances so far. Number one is the theological tolerance. 
Number two is the financial tolerance. Number three is the Sabbath, tolerance of the Sabbath. The last thing, very important, there was tolerance in their marriage. There was tolerance in their marriage. Look at verse 23. In those days I also saw Jews who had married women of Ashad, Ammon, and Moab. And half of their children spoke the language of Ashdod and could not speak the language of Judah, but spoke according to the language of one or the other people. So what Nehemiah discovered that some of the Jews had married foreign women and their children didn't even speak Hebrew. Why is it a problem, church? Which meant that they couldn't understand the scriptures. That's what it meant. We need to understand that marrying an unbeliever will not only affect you, it will have a negative impact on your children. They'll grow up speaking a language of Ashdod and not understanding the things of God. Israel was raising a generation of children who could not speak and understand the language of the scripture. That was a problem that threatened to wipe out the Israel's ability to hear the voice of the Lord. When this marriage between a Jew and a woman from Ashdod takes place, Satan will lead your children and you astray from the Lord. Your children will be half pagan. Your grandchildren will be completely pagan. So when you are tempted to grow in a relationship with an unbeliever, the devil will never tell you these things. But, the, but, but what he will do is this. He will say, oh poor you. You are a good child of God. Don't worry, he or she will eventually come to the Lord. Look around and see the examples of others who had interreligious marriage. So and so came to, came to know the Lord. Aren't they doing fine in life? Church, these are lies from the devil. These are lies. If you are in control of who would be saved, then that's fine. You can do it. You can befriend an unbeliever and give him that gift of salvation. I have seen many couples, many, many couples who had interfaith marriage and have been strayed from the Lord. I've said this before, I'll say it again. I can quote many examples of people I begged, I pleaded, and, and I remember one child even slammed the door on me when I pleaded with them not to get married to unbelievers and the marriage did not last six months. And here Nehemiah speaks of King Solomon, the one who was listened to this carefully church, raised in a Christian home. He couldn't have had a better dad than David. You read through Proverbs and you'll see the amount of instruction that he received from the father. Being raised by David with godly counsel and instruction and every reason to believe that Solomon would be safe and secure would have a beautiful ending, but look at what, what, what we looked at earlier. Did not Solomon, king of Israel, sin by these things? Nevertheless, look at the last verse. Pagan women caused even him to sin. We see in 1 Kings 11.4, it talks about as Solomon grew old, his wives turned his heart after their gods, and he, his heart was not fully devoted to the Lord, his God, as the heart of David his father had been. Oh dear children, that is why I cry out to you. That is why I do marriage counsel. 
I'm saying this, I'm willing to spend hours and hours and hours with you, and some of you know that. And I start my counsel with the basic salvation. That is why you have to be equally yoked. That is why I refuse to marry when your partner is not a committed believer. A pastor once said that the moral permissiveness always begins like an innocent trickle through the dam, but it suddenly widens until the dam suddenly gives away. At that point, the damage is serious and widespread. I want you to see what Nehemiah did this about this problem, how he confronted this. This will open our eyes. Look at verse number 25 here. So I contented with them and cursed them. Now look at the next one. Struck some of them and pulled out their hair. Boy, in today's society, he would be behind bars today. <laughs> Come on, Nehemiah. The cops are coming after you if you do that. But I'm not saying that's what the Bible says. I struck some of them and pulled out their hair and made them swear by God saying, you shall not give your daughters as wives to their children, sons, nor take their daughters for your sons or yourselves. The greater problem, the greater the intensity with which Nehemiah responded here. The word cursed is, is not that he used any profanity here. Don't get that. Go, don't get that. Understand. It was a severe term. That's what it means here. And verse number 27, he says, Should we then hear of your doing all this great evil? He calls it great evil here. Transgressing against our God. By how? By marrying pagan women. I know that some would criticize Jeremiah for not being more tactful and polite. But when God's people are being poisoned by, by this compromise and tolerance, politeness may not be the best. Church, if I really see you about to consume poison and not knowing it was poison, and if I really love you and I care for you, I cannot stand back and say, oh, how am I going to say this to him or her? If I really love you, I will hit you so hard that the poison bottle will, will fall away, miles away from you. I don't care even if you get hurt. But I'm saving you. It is far more loving rudely to knock the poison out of the person's hand than to smile politely and watch him drink. That's what you see Nehemiah doing here. He didn't worry about being polite or about what people would think. I'm sure that he made many enemies when he, spoke, when he did all this. Many would have grumbled and many would have said, what an unloving, harsh man he was. Now look at this, when he closes this passage. Just give me about five minutes to wrap this up, please. Having addressed the tolerance... The spiritual compromise in four areas we looked at. Theological tolerance, financial tolerance, tolerance of the Sabbath, and there was tolerance in their homes and in their marriages. He makes a personal plea to the Lord. I love this. You know, after reading this, this has become my prayer now. Every day. Look at this. Remember me, oh my God, for good. Remember me, oh my God, for good. That's how he closes this. 13 chapters at the very last verse. What does this mean? Why does he say this? In verse number 14, Nehemiah uses the word good deeds here. Look at verse number 14. 
Remember me, O my God, concerning this, and do not wipe out my good deeds that I have done for the house of my God and for its services. The, the Hebrew word is loyal deeds. Some people think this sounds very self-serving. That Nehemiah is concerned that God is going to forget him and not reward him adequately. Church, that is the wrong way to read this prayer. What he's doing is recognizing his own frailty and his own tendency to self-deception. What he's saying in effect is this, Lord, I have done all this, but you may see it differently than I. You may see something in me that would cause you to blot out all, all out of your book. Everything that I've done. If you feel that way, God, please show me. Please. That is what he is asking here. It is really the same prayer that David made in Psalm 139. It's a great psalm. I know you all of you know that psalm. At the end, he's talking about this. How we are fearfully and wonderfully made. How well God knows us and our sitting and our rising and we take the wings of the morning and travel to the uttermost parts of the world. Still God is there. That's the Psalm 139. And he watches over us, how, how he guards us and keeps us and knows our thoughts. And at the very end of it, David says this, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there's any offensive ways in me and lead me in the way everlasting. That's a wonderful, honest prayer. In saying this, Lord, I do not know myself very well. I deceive myself easily. I think I'm doing fine. But you may see a lot of things that are terribly wrong with what I'm doing. Lord, search me. Lord, know me. Lord, see if there's any wicked way in me. And lead me in the point where I can see that too. That was the psalmist. That's what the psalmist is asking. And that's what Nehemiah is praying here. It is a great prayer for all of us. Church, as we confront spiritual compromise we see in others, may we ask the Lord to help us as we are. Our motives, our hearts, our actions. May He remember us for good. May that God, may that good be genuine love for others. When we confront somebody, it is out of genuine love. May that good be genuine service for others. May that good be found good in our master's eyes. Only when it's found good in the master's eyes, we will know that there is no ulterior motive in the way that I'm rebuking you. May he welcome us. Well done, thou good and faithful servant. As we toil in his vineyard, wholeheartedly. Shall we pray? Remember me, O oh my God, concerning this, and do not wipe out my good deeds that I done for the house of my God, for its services. Remember me, O oh my God, for good. And all God's people said, Amen and Amen. God bless you. God be with you.